Gittleman here once again for the first Lady of Nutrition podcast. And as all of you know, if you visited annelouise.com, I'm a big believer in the importance of bile. And today we're going to talk about what bile has to do with health, because I believe bile is brilliant and very underserved and very underestimated in today's health world. So today I've invited a woman who has made quite a mark in the health community. Her name is Karen Hurd from karenhurd.com. And she herself has a Master of Science in Biochemistry, and she's enrolled in the George Washington University Master of Public Health program, so she knows from what she talks about. Karen, what does bile have to do with it? Please let me know how you became interested in the importance of bile, which is the focus of my book, Radical Metabolism. Well, I became interested because my 18-month-old daughter was poisoned with an organophosphate, a bug spray when and she was given no chance to live and um i said i can't accept that something has to be different her liver had failed because the organophosphate which is chloropyrifos has to be cleared by the liver it's cleared through the bile and so i studied the enterohepatic recirculation and learned about bile and my daughter is now in her 30s and she's alive and well and she even has a daughter so that's oh. what got me into it but I mean, I, you know, there was a lot of studying in between, you know, the, my beginning of the pursuit of it and where I am now over 30 years later. So I didn't, I didn't know this. I, I'm so, so interested because, you know, bile is kind of the forgotten metabolic switch of the body. It was the focus of, a, of an international bestseller that I wrote called Radical Metabolism. But so many people don't pay attention to bile. How did you know that your daughter was actually poisoned by a um, pesticide? Uh, because we had the chlorine, uh, the cholinesterate tests run on it. We, we, I mean, she went into grand mal seizures and we had, she was hospitalized twice and they misdiagnosed her thinking it was a febrile seizure. And I said, no, we just had our house sprayed for bugs. And I also oh. had a career in the United States Army. I served for four years. And one of my specialties was chemical, biological, nuclear warfare. And so I already knew about nerve agent poisoning. I knew that the symptoms my daughter was having, including the grand mal seizures were a nerve agent poisoning symptom. And the bug spray that they used on our carpet, we had carpet beetles, was a nerve agent. And so I said, this has got to be something to do because it was, a, it was directly after we had the house sprayed. And they said, no, 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 no. This is just a coincidence. She has a febrile seizure. I said, her temperature is 100 degrees Fahrenheit. That's not a febrile seizure. Anyway, so we had to have specialists come in and actually Dr. Sheldon Wagner from the University in Corvallis is the one who finally lit into the physicians in St. Louis. I was at St. Louis Children's Hospital with the physicians there and the neurologists there and said, you need to start reading and start looking at these things and have you run a cholinesterate level, which I begged the hospital to do is to run a cholinesterate level because that would confirm if she had been poisoned with this organophosphate. Well, when, the, when this research child toxicologist, Sheldon Wagner told him to do it, they did it. It came out positive. She was poisoned. And so then began the recovery, which they said, there's nothing we can do to recover it. Her liver enzymes are off the chart. She is going to die. Her, her immune system is irreparably damaged. It's too much exposure to the organophosphate. There's nothing we can do. And we saw specialists in St. Louis. 
we saw specialists in Chicago and conferred by phone with specialists in Dallas, all of these child toxicologists, and they all agreed. The prognosis was she only had a very short time to live. Oh, I'm so sorry. What a... Well, it was was very traumatic. (laughs) Oh, to say that's traumatic for me to hear this 30 years later. So is this particular test, now would you explain what this test is? Because my my listeners are not going to be familiar with it. Is this something that anybody can require, ask their physician? Well, it's an easy enough test. I mean, it's not generally run. I mean, on a, you know, a a liver panel, you don't run cholinesterate levels. We're only running those to see if you've been poisoned. Like if you had a snake bite, your cholinesterate levels would be affected. But aren't there many, but but here's my point. Many people have all kinds of undiagnosed neurological symptoms. Wouldn't this be a good thing to rule out? Possibly if the neurological symptoms were caused by uh, like an organ, uh, by uh, some agent, by some chemical agent. We're looking for a chemical agent, not just not on an endogenous something produced by the human body, because we can be very sick with our own hormones. If we're overproducing adrenaline, which is epinephrine and norepinephrine, those two hormones alone will cause stress on your liver, but they're endogenous. We make those. It would be chemicals that are coming in, a poisoning. So the cholinesterate level is really for a poisonous Sure, but I'm sure, but here's the point. A lot of people don't realize they get bug sprays. Perhaps they get lawn sprays. Perhaps they live on a a, uh, golf course. I'm just thinking this is something they should rule out because you never know what you don't know. And I think this is so important. So very important. So that's how you became interested. But you have a philosophy that I'd like to just circle back to. And that is that food can kill, food can heal. Tell me how you came to that conclusion. Well, because of the institution of diet that I made, because there was no medicine, there was no help that I could get from a physician. I had to come up with my own plan, which I did study. I went to the university, uh, the Washington University in St. Louis, who's a a medical school there in St. Louis. And I went to the library and just studied and studied. And this is in the time we're talking about, you know, 1989, early 1990s. So we didn't have, you know, this digital stuff. Everything was on microfiche, you know? And so I'm studying in the library to figure out what can you do to recover a a liver? And I studied much about the enterohepatic recirculation. And then how can we interrupt that? What is the enterohepatic recirculation? And if I could interrupt it, then it's possible that I could see, save my daughter Ruth's life. And that's what I did. We interrupted that pattern and Ruth's life was saved to the amazement to all of our doctors because we continued to do follow-ups and they couldn't believe that she got better. And then that's how I got onto a speaking route because everybody wanted to know how did you heal your daughter and blah, blah, blah. And that's what propelled me into the, where I am now. So, so, food, so food. What, do we need, what do we need to know about the enterohepatic recirculation? It sounds very scary to me. What do my people need to know about it? Well, don't let the, the long word scare you. It, or it's all it means is recycling of bile. That's all Love it means. It. <laughs> Thank recycling you. Recycling of bile. When we, the liver is always making bile. It has to. If you stop making bile, you'll be dead in about less than 24 hours. So you're going to be making bile continually. Bile is a fluid that is going to carry out all fat soluble waste. The liver only deals with fat-soluble waste. The kidneys deal with water-soluble waste. But most of the toxic waste that will kill us in a very short amount of time is fat-soluble. 
blue liver is very powerful organ and it's constantly filtering out all of these fat soluble toxins, which could be a poison like this organophosphate, or it just could be your own hormones, or it could, it could be the, the BHT or, you know, whatever, you know, the, the glycophosphate, you know, these are fertilizers, you know, and, and things that we put on our crops. It's filtering all these things out and it does a very effective job and it filters out dead red blood cells. It does a lot of good work. Where does it put all this waste? I mean, it's taking it out of the bloodstream. We have to get it to go out of the body somehow. Well, we can't send it down to the kidneys so that we will urinate and get it that way because fats and water do not mix at all. In chemistry, they don't talk to each other. They don't have anything to do with each other. They will not work together. And so we can't send these, these toxic wastes down to the kidneys so that we can urinate and get them out of the body that way, but we can put them in the bile. The bile is the digestive fluid also that helps us break down the fats that we're eating but that's only one of its roles. The main role is it is the trash truck for the liver. The liver puts all of this fat soluble trash into the bile and then the bile travels down little tubes they are called biliary ducts. And they end up, the bile will go, some of it will go via the gallbladder where it's concentrated to 10 times the strength. And some of it drips directly into the duodenum the duodenum is just below the sternum and above your belly button. It's the first part of your small colon. And that's where all bile is released, whether it's released from the gallbladder or released directly from the liver through that biliary duct, all of it gets released into the duodenum. Okay, so then the bile does it work, its work. It digests all the fatty acids that you're eating and it travels down through the small colon. We go into the next part of the small colon, which is called the jejunum. Nothing happens there. And then we go into the terminal part of the ileum. The ileum is the last part of the small colon. And just before the small colon is, is connecting to the large colon, there's a valve that separates the small and the large colon called the ileocecal valve. On the small colon side of the valve, we absorb fats. Now, we don't absorb fats anywhere else in the gastrointestinal tract, not from our mouth, not from the stomach, not from the duodenum, not from the jejunum, not from the large colon. We only absorb them from one place in the intestinal tract, and that is from the ileum and specifically the terminal part of the ileum. Well, so what's the big deal if we absorb fats there? Because bile is made out of fat. Mm -hmm. The only way to carry a fat-soluble waste product is to put it into a fat substance. Mm-hmm. And so if we're absorbing our own bile, because we are, and it's a fat, does that mean we're absorbing all that fat soluble waste that's in the bile too? And the answer to that is yes. How much? 95%. Mm -hmm. 95% of our waste products gets recycled back into the bloodstream and they're set free again. And so like, if you look at the poisoning of Ruth, Ruth is the name of my daughter, that was poison. She, she was recycling the chloropyrophosphate over and over and over again. How often? It can be 21. We measure it. It depends on motility of the individual, but it can be 21 to 72 times per day that we're recycling this. And so round and round and round it goes. And each time it goes through, it can create more. In this case, it would recreate neurological damage. 
but it depends on what the, the fat, fatty waste is that what damage you. So, I, so let me just jump in here because I've written about this and I'm asking you questions that I know that my listeners are going to ask you. I understand the importance of bile, the forgotten importance of bile. Why is this not mentioned as prolifically in the literature, do you think? They used to talk about this in the early 1900s, but nobody talks about it anymore. And they certainly don't realize that bile is a repository of all the toxic fat-soluble waste. Why is there no energy given to this? Why is there no importance given to the real important role of bile in this day and age of diet and detox? It's a good question, and we can only hypothesize the answer to that. Um, one hypothesis, my hypothesis, is that we have become such a drug medication-centered society that the answer to all of our health problems is to take this medication, that medication, this medication, that medication. And we have forgot some of the very simple biological processes that happen. And the enterohepatic recirculation is not some weird thing. Recycling a bile is not some new concept. It is still talked about today. And there's actually quite a bit about it in the scientific literature, but it's not prevalent because no one's focusing on that. Right, so right. why not? Because quite frankly, you're not going to make any money. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not jaded. I'm really not. I'm just more realistic. If it's a if it doesn't have some type of money attached to it, then why pursue it? Because what the answers I'm gonna give you today to get you well, it's so cheap that anybody can afford it. Mm, we love and, that. And you don't have to get a prescription of a medication that's gonna cost you, you know, however many dollars per month. Some medications are 400 or $1,000 a month, depending on the medication you're taking. And you can just, you can just go to the grocery store and it's not like the things I'm gonna ask you, you have to, order it from some special macrobiotic website. No, go to your local grocery store. Everybody carries these foods. It's that simple. So getting to that, and this is gonna be the heart of what we're gonna be discussing. So you believe that foods have the power to harm, foods have the power to heal. And there's one particular food which we, we, we need to pay more closer attention to that is a real healer for the enterohepatic recirculation or the bile production, sluggish bile, et cetera. Yes. So tell us about this food and why it is the missing link to healthy bile. The name of the food is beans. And beans, I'm talking about lentils, black beans, brown beans, kidney beans, garbanzo beans. It's the beans that are, you know, that we see dried, or you can buy them already canned, you know, where they've been cooked. This is not a green bean. This is not a soybean. It is not a peanut. I can use the word legume, but soybeans and peanuts are considered legumes. And it's because the way they grow on a bush and above the ground. And anyway, so it has nothing to do with what is the content. The content of the bean, the ones that I just described, like the garbanzo and kidney bean, black bean, lentil, it has soluble fiber. See, this bile is going to recycle because it is a fat-soluble substance. But if we could bind the bile with something that cannot be absorbed, then the bile will be carried into large colon. It will be excreted into the toilet in the form of a bowel movement. And we just got rid of all that fat-soluble waste. Well, what can do that? We have to have two properties for a food to meet th these qualifications. One, cannot be absorbed anywhere in the intestinal tract, 100% has to be excreted. Two, 
It has to have the capacity to bind or to capture the micelles. The micelles are the name of the molecules of bile. So we have to capture these molecules of bile. Well, what has that capacity? Soluble fiber. Soluble fiber that is found primarily in beans. We can find it in a few other food sources, but it is in such tiny, tiny amounts. We would have to eat massive amounts of these foods to even get close to what we need to be able to interrupt the enterohepatic recirculation. So what does soluble fiber do? Well, first of all, soluble fiber, 100% of it is excreted. None of it can cross the intestinal barrier. Okay, we just met qualification number one. Qualification number two is soluble fiber is a very complex, many-branched polysaccharide. What that means is the molecular structure of this soluble fiber is such that it can catch in a net the biomolecules. And it captures them in the net, and then the biomolecules can't escape the net. And then the soluble fiber is going out in the toilet, and so whatever is caught in the net goes out into the toilet too. And that bile, that, that bile that is bound up into the soluble fiber, none of it recycles. So none of that fat soluble waste goes back into the bloodstream and we start to clean our whole system. I mean, I'm, it's the bloodstream, it's everywhere. We store things in different fatty tissues. I mean, we have all kinds of fat soluble waste throughout the body. We store it in the liver. That's some people are diagnosed with a fatty liver. It's just they're storing their fat soluble waste in their liver. Some people have lipomas. They're just fatty tissues that can be anywhere on the body, can be inside, you know, underneath the skin. That's just fatty tissue, fatty waste being stored because we're not getting rid of it. So we just make little, little trash piles, little midden heaps of fatty acid waste when we can't get rid of it fast enough. So let me jump in here because this is so fascinating. Having done a book on bile and the gallbladder and rebooting the gallbladder, and I've never heard of the bile proto uh, the bean protocol. So how many beans do you need? Can you give us specifics? How much a, a day, any particular time of day before, during, or after a meal? They should be with a meal. And if you have basically no known health problems, I mean, that you just want to be healthy and well, and an average person, 120 pounds or more, should be eating a half a cup of cooked beans, not uncooked, so they're already been cooked, a half a cup of cooked beans at breakfast, a half a cup at lunch, half a cup at dinner. That's gonna give you 15 grams of soluble fiber a day. And then you're just, that's just a really good place that everybody should be doing all the time. You know what's so interesting, Karen? When you take a look at the blue zones, I just did a book on longevity. The most prevalent food that they take for long life, it happens to be beans. Yeah. Yes. It's because not a, it's not a coincidence. No, ma'am. This is not a coincidence at all. It's because they are constantly excreting their fat soluble waste. What is the cause of cancer? It's mutated DNA. How do, the, how do these mutations happen? through mostly free radical damage and the fat soluble waste, most primarily the fat soluble waste that we're trying to get rid of mutates DNA. How come we have fatty livers? How come we have Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, acid reflux, sphincter of Adi problems? I mean, we can, PMS problems, female problems, endometriosis, um, infertility, um, prostate problems, the list goes on and on and on because now we're all dealing with hormones, depression, anxiety, all deals with hormones. Which system in our body clears all these hormones which create these problems out? The liver. 
Where mm. does the liver put all these hormones? In the bile. In the, that's right. And so, they all recycle at 95%. So it's, it's elegant and simple. It's easy. However, is there a certain way to cook the beans so they don't provide GI tract irritation? A lot of people get very bloated, very gassy with beans. Well, it's actually beans don't create the gas. What creates the gas is the fat-soluble waste. Because people who don't eat beans, ask them. They'll say, I have gas, and I have gastrointestinal dis dis uh, dysfunctions. And so what is creating all of their problems if they're not eating beans? It's because they're fermenting their foods. See, foods, we have two digestive processes. One is that we use digestive enzymes to break our foods into smaller little pieces so that they can be absorbed and utilized by the human body. But we have another system that will also break down foods and that's the fermentation process. Well, which system is going to digest your foods? That depends on your hormone production because the default state of the body is to use digestive enzymes to break down our food. However, if you have a lot of hormones in your biofluids that are coming down from your liver and they've been recycling for who knows how long, then these hormones actually trigger a signal transduction pathway that sets into play the secondary system of fermentation. The more hormones you have, the more fermentation you will get. Well, who Ooh, cares about fermentation? Well, fermentation always, not some of the time, not part of the time, all the time creates gas. That's the that's what fermentation is all about. We're going to make gas, and so, so the then we're going to bloated and all the rest. Bloated is just gas; it has not escaped yet. So, how do you cook your beans? You can cook them. You can soak them and boil them. You can get one of these pressure cooker Instapot types of things. You can just cook them like that. You can buy them in a can at the store. They just need to be, they can't be hard. They have to be cooked. I mean, if they're hard, they'll break your teeth, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, that we get. So yeah. is there any particular kind of bean? So you use half a cup three times a day with each meal. Do you do this on a daily basis? Oh, yes, ma'am. Wow. And tell me what's happened to you since you've been using your bean protocol. I am probably... I am the healthiest person that I know. And I work yeah. with lots of people. I mean, I I'm, work not, with I'm knocking on wood. Yeah, yeah, knock on wood for me too. Um, but I am 63 years old. I mean, I can put my camera on the Zoom so you can look at me. I don't think that I look 63. You can look at me and see if I look like I'm 63. You don't. Okay. And so, you know, the pictures on my website, those weren't taken 10 years ago. Those were just taken a few months ago. <laughs> so, you know. I feel fantastic. I have tons of energy. I do tremendous amounts of things. I'm always, you know, I certainly have my practice with my nutrition practice, but I'm also a movie producer. I'm also running for public office. I'm Good also, for you. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm designing a truth app that'll go out on responsive website. I mean, I'm writing a book uh, and I've just finished writing a book and I'm looking to produce another movie. And I mean, I got a lot of irons in the fire. Besides, I have four grandchildren that I spent a lot of time with. I have a disabled husband and I work, I take care of him. I got lots of stuff in, to do, but I can get it all done because I feel fantastic all the time. Wow. And, and we attribute this to the bean protocol. Have you used the bean protocol with people that have lipomas? I have a number of clients that want to get rid of their lipomas. Have you had any success with that? Absolutely. 
tons of oh, sugar. Oh, wow. Tell, I've tell never had it, it not work. It will work. But people have to remember, we can't just add beans to a diet and say, that's going to cover up all my mistakes. I'm going to still drink some coffee and I'm still going to eat my sweets and I'm still going to do a lot of wrong things and just hope the beans cover me. No, you have to do more than that because, so, yeah. All right. So you tell me what your top changes would be. And I'll tell you if I agree. Tell me, I'm sorry, I missed it. Top, top dietary changes to go along with the bean protocol. You have to get rid of sugar. You okay, agree, I agree a thousand percent. And tell me the sources of sugar. Are we talking about sugar, alcohols, monk fruit, stevia? And what do you think? All of the above. Certainly, you know, your standard sugar, which is, you know, your white sugar, your brown sugar, but it includes honey, it includes monk fruit. Your sugar alcohols, they work in a completely different mechanism of action. They're not elevating your blood glucose level. They do in a tertiary manner, but they are causing a stimulation of adrenaline and adrenaline causes gluconeogenesis and then your blood sugars can go up. But and I'm, beginning, and I'm, I'm so glad you're saying this. I'm beginning to see this. So what do we use as a sweetener? We don't. We don't. You begin, to, you begin to think that your winter squash, like butternut squash, is just like, whoa, this is so sweet. Now, this is without the marshmallows and the brown sugar on top of it. You know how <laughs> Of course, of course. No, we don't do that. We're just eating plain butternut squash. You can put some salt and pepper on it if you like, or, you know, whatever spice you want. But there's no sweet to it. And then you think, wow, or you eat a bell pepper. Like, I was eating a red bell pepper last night. It's like, this is so sweet. It's like, wow. What, people who are eating sweets would eat a red bell pepper and go, that's not sweet. You know, well, when you haven't had sweets for 30 years, you think it's really sweet. So we're talking, my, my, my dear, my dear, we're talking about the elimination of honey. Let's be very clear with my people out there. We're talking about the elimination of honey, maple syrup, monk fruit, stevia, erythritol, the sugar alcohols, et cetera, et cetera. That is correct. That is what we're talking about. And that is what I'm beginning to see in my own practice. So what is breakfast, lunch, and dinner for Karen Hurd? I have a protein at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So whether it's chicken or fish or whether it's, you know, a lean piece of beef, um, seafood, the proteins are eggs, meat, poultry, fish, and seafood eggs. That's all fine. And then I also have my beans and then I have my vegetables. And then before I go to bed each night, I always eat my nuts because they have this wonderful source of the omega fatty acids. I, omega-6 is my favorite fatty acid if it's unaltered. What are your favorite nuts? Mine are macadamia. Oh, I love cashews. How many cashews does Karen Hurd ingest? I eat a cup and a half a day. Throughout the day or just at night? No, just at night because I, I, I'm eating, I'm really busy during the day. I just listed off a few of my projects that I'm doing. So I just eat my three meals during the day. And then at night, when I'm getting ready for bed, then I get my nuts out. And while I'm reading, I do all my different kinds of reading and different books and stuff. I do that at, while I'm reading. So raw or untoasted, raw or roasted? Oh, I eat mine raw. They can be toasted. That does not change the fat because to be able to, it's called hydrogenate the fat you would have to heat it to such a high temperature that actually the nut would burn up and be consumed in the flame before we can hydrogenate the fat. And so that's why like in commercially to hydrogenate a fat, you have to run it over like a metal, like a zinc plate, and then you pump in hydrogen gas at the same time. It's, it's actually, 
a very laboratory intense procedure to get something to hydrogenate without catching it on fire. I love lightly toasted nuts. So you do seeds and nuts, but your favorite is cashews and they're organic, yeah. I suspect. Well, it doesn't really matter because if you were, see, the, the things that we're worried about with organic versus non-organic are, you know, what are we using for chemical pesticides, herbicides, all the rest of it. Your liver easily, easily clears these things. And it's a very tiny bit of the major waste that it's clearing. The major waste that the liver is clearing is your own metabolic pro products, specifically your own hormones. That's taking uh, well over 90% of everything that the liver is clearing. It's a little bit of, you know, the glycophosphate or whatever, you know, you're worried about the roundup or whatever. That is so easily clear. The liver is like, oh, this is, this is baby, baby work here. Yeah, that's gone. It's already in the bile. If you're eating the beans, that stuff is gone. It's gone. So, so when you eat your beans, could somebody just get a can of, it'll be a can of cooked uh, chickpeas, for example. Can we just eat them all straight out of the can and on BPA can? So, Absolutely. So it doesn't have to be cooked. It can be cold dried from the can for those that have no time. Exactly. What fun this is. This is very, you know, I interview a lot of people, Karen Hurd, and this is one of the most innovative podcasts that I've, uh, that I've ever listened to because you're actually an independent thinker, so I take my hat off to you. Well, thank you. So, so beans are not the solution, of course, for all health issues. Tell me what else you would do besides the beans, depending upon the health issue. Caffeine. Caffeine. We have to get rid of caffeine and People use caffeine because caffeine stimulates an adrenal production. They're going to get a lift. I don't deny efficacy of caffeine. Of course it works. You're going to feel brighter, happier, more clear thinking. Welcome to the world of an adrenaline rush. That's what it does for you. But that adrenaline is a hormone that the liver has to clear out and put into the biofluids and it's going to recycle at 95%. And as you continue to stimulate the adrenal glands to produce adrenaline again and again and again and again because of your caffeine intake, you wear out your adrenal glands and then you're gonna have a problem with adrenal fatigue. And you're gonna wonder why you need two cups of coffee, three cups of coffee. You have to drink a pot of coffee now to keep going during the day. It's because you have worn your adrenal glands so far down by continuing to demand so much out of them that they're just worn out. And then pretty soon, even your pot of coffee doesn't do any good. And then you're still tired and we're just, <laughs> caffeine gives you a lift, but always leaves you lower than it finds you. And then also caffeine has a lot of other detrimental side effects, including it is a major cause of estrogen production. And if you have excess estrogen floating in your bloodstream, you are a sitting duck for female cancers and prostate cancer if you're a male. So, which, 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 which is why I've written about the importance of certain clean mold-free coffees that also have a decaf version that still has the chlorogenetic acid. So that would be the purity decaf that does not have the caffeine, which I'm now telling people to drink. So we're on the same page there. What almost, else are people- Almost, almost on the same page. <laughs> So, well, that makes for that. This makes for a good podcast. Besides the caffeine sugar connection, which I'm with you a thousand percent, at least on the sugar. Tell me what else you think people are doing, are, are not doing correctly that they think they're doing right. Essential oils and then perfumes. But there's a big push in the alternative health field of essential oils. You know, use this essential oil, lavender, if you have a migraine headache or this one for that or that one for this. Peppermint, cypress. Oh, oh yeah, there's bunches of essential oils. 
They are just like caffeine. I do not deny their efficacy, but they are stimulating a hormonal response. That's how they work. That, and so you're getting your, you're getting your adrenaline rush. You're getting it. It works. But these are very small molecules. These, per, these essential oil molecules. So you're they're, talking. They're, you're talking about the oils that you put on topically. I want to be clear about that. Yes, I am. And some people actually swallow them in pill form too. But I'm talking about the ones that you rub on, you know, your wrist or the back of your neck or wherever. You know, you're putting it on topically, because you're inhaling these molecules, which are very, very tiny, and these molecules are able to cross through your cell walls through a process called diffusion. To be able to enter a cell, we, we protect the inside of our cell like crazy because if you get inside the cell, lots of damage can be done. And so we have gated entrances to the cell. You have to go through a gate to get into the cell. A perfume doesn't have to do that or an essential oil doesn't have to do that. It is such a tiny, tiny molecule that it diffuses. It just walks through the wall and it just gets into the cytosol, that's the inside of the cell. And what it does in the cytosol is it immediately is attracted to a transcription factor and that transcription factor takes it to the nuclear envelope. Inside every cell, we have a nuclear envelope and inside the nuclear envelope is housed your DNA. And so the, this little perfume molecule, essential oil molecule will cross through diffusion, the nuclear envelope, because that's gated entrance too. You can't just cross the nuclear envelope because we are protecting our DNA at all costs. But with the transcription factor attached and being such a tiny molecule, it goes through diffusion, it crosses in and attaches itself to your DNA. And when it attaches to the DNA, it causes a reshuffling of the nucleic acids, which means it mutates your DNA. You say, well, who cares about that? It depends on where it lands. It's an arbitrary landing. It could be on a place in the DNA that really is not gonna code for anything important, but it could be on the P53 gene. If it's on the P53 gene, your chances of having cancer just shot up way high because the P53 gene is gonna protect you from cancer. So, yes, 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 yes. So you're talking about you're talking about all the essential oils, even the ones like frankincense, which are purportedly anti-cancer? Yes. Yes, I am. So what do you think people should do for a natural perfume? Nothing. Take a bath so you don't smell like sweat. And you shouldn't have a smell. There should be no smell. I remember a little neighbor, a kid coming over to our home, playing with all of our children because we had no scents, no perfumes in our home at all. And he said, I love coming over here. And I said, why? His name was Zach. Why, Zach? He said, because your house doesn't smell like anything. It just smells fresh and like there's no scent. It's just a relief to breathe, breathe the free air, free of nothing, free of, free of, of anything. He said, I just love coming here because there's no scents or perfumes. So now that you've blown everybody's mind with your feelings about caffeine, essential oils and perfumes, anything else that we're doing, that we're maybe doing incorrectly that most of us think we're doing correctly. What, what is your feeling about all these um, the ketogenic diets, for example, as we close out the podcast? Uh, they are very harmful because it sets up a, it sets up liver damage and also kidney damage. 
Amen. God bless you. This is what I've been talking to my people about for ages. I, I totally agree with you. And then what happens if you don't have a gallbladder and you're on a ketogenic diet? If you don't have a gallbladder and you're on a ketogenic diet, you need to prepare for a gallbladder or you won't have a gallbladder attack, but you'll have a biliary attack and liver problems and sphincter or body problems anywhere that what you have left that they didn't remove from the surgery. Cause those are high fat diets and you cannot, when you don't have a gallbladder, it's very difficult to digest those high fat diets. And you're, you're a sitting duck for lots of pain and discomfort in the upper right quadrant. So as we close out my new friend, people should find you. Tell us again where we should find you and tell us what's on that particular website. You can find me at karenherd.com. It's my name and herd is spelled H-U-R-D. And Karen is her traditional spelling. And you have some, you've got some courses that you're making available. I have 17 courses that I've already published. You can sign up for a course. The cool thing about it is that you get all the video teaching, you get your protocol, exactly what you should eat or not sh shouldn't eat according to your health condition. And then you have actually then hired me as your online consultant. So you can email me at any time. It's part of the course, the one-time cost of the course, and it's perpetual and say, Karen, I have this, this, and this, what should I do now? And I will email you back and say, we need to do this, this, and this, or I'll ask you more questions. Hey, are you still doing caffeine? Are you still doing essential oils? We need to get rid of those first. And then we can address your migraine headaches. Well, I found this particularly innovative. You're a phenomenal researcher. Can I thank you now for being a guest on my podcast, Karen Hurd? Yes, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. As many of you know, I've written a book called Radical Metabolism, which you can get at radicalmetabolism.com. And please visit me, my dear listeners, at annelouise.com slash no hyphen gallbladder. And you'll see what I propose for people that don't have a gallbladder. And right now I'm going to start the bean protocol tomorrow. Thank you once again for being my guest and tune in next week for another scintillating, God willing episode of First Lady of Nutrition. Thank you so much, Karen Hurd. Come back again. Yeah.